there. It is a short book. In fact, it's the third shortest book in the New Testament. It's the shortest of the 13 books written by the Apostle Paul. It consists of only 25 short verses or 335 words in the original Greek New Testament. But I don't want you, I don't want the brevity, excuse me, I don't want the brevity of the book to lead you to think that for some reason, because it's shorter, it's less important as maybe some of the larger volumes that we find in the New Testament. This is the way that I used to think when I was a kid. I remember hearing the preachers preach through the Old Testament and preach about the major prophets and the minor prophets. And in my mind, that always meant that there were more important prophets and prophets that were not so important, right? Uh, but really, major and minor was really just just a a title of letting us know how big the books were. Some were larger volumes, some were smaller volumes, but I think we would all agree all of them are equally as significant as the other. Well, that would certainly be true then for the book of Philemon. Philemon is certainly significant, immensely significant, but it's also incredibly relevant. See, the overall uh, really subject or theme of the book is forgiveness. And I can't think of a subject that is more relevant to the Christian life, all of Christendom, than this concept, the subject of forgiveness. Can you? Uh, I mean, when, if you were to try to sum up, it just in one word, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which would be, in fact, very difficult to be able to do, but if you were to wrap it up and you had to give one word that would define what the gospel is, I, I think that maybe we'd find ourselves using the word forgiveness. When we, we repent and believe in the completed work of Jesus Christ, Why? so that our sins will be forgiven, right? When God forgives our sins, what he does is he sets us free from the penalty of our sin and he restores a once broken, fractured relationship uh, with him once again. So the Bible is all about God's forgiveness of sinners. I think we would all agree, but the Bible also teaches a great deal about the need of those who have received that forgiveness to now in turn be able to forgive other people. Um, Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. I, I love this verse. It teaches us, freely you have received. Now, freely give. Now, what is it that we've re- freely received from God? Well, everything, right? I mean, just about everything. We could spend some time just talking about all that God has given us. But one thing that we know that he's given us is an abundance of forgiveness. Would you say amen to that? Abundance of forgiveness. And he says, because you have freely received my forgiveness towards you, now you must freely forgive other people. God is benevolently, uh, benevolent in his forgiveness towards us. Uh, we should be eager to forgive others. Now, we have specific commands in the word of God to do so. Not just general, like we just read, but specific. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13 says, Bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You also must forgive. But it's that last part, the must forgive, that we really run into some problems, right? See, it's not so much the receiving of forgiveness we have a hard time with. Uh, We're all about the receiving of God's forgiveness. Uh, We're like, hey, God, bring it on. 
I mess up every day. We love to even state it. God, I've messed up every day uh, in countless ways. Forgive me. We receive your forgiveness. It's why a lot of us are even gathered today is just to celebrate the fact that we've been forgiven. We live to testify of his forgiveness. We love to sing about his forgiveness, right? How, how many, some of you look so tired. All right, just let you know. So I'm just gonna keep preaching by faith that inside you're rejoicing. All right, over the forgiveness of your sins. And, and, and so we do. So, so it's not so much the receiving part that we have a difficulty with. It's, it's about the giving part that we have a hard time with. God is immensely, again, generous with forgiving us of all of our sins, past, present, and future. But it seems like many times, and I think that you would agree, we tend to be a little bit stingy in really bestowing forgiveness on other people who have sinned against us. And, and let me suggest this. I suggest that that is a key in the core to many of our problems that we have. The problems that we have in our relationships with our spouse, problems that we have with family, problems that we have within the body of Christ, maybe even with coworkers, maybe with even unbelievers in the world, stems from this difficulty of forgiving those that have sinned against us. Uh, let's be very clear. Forgiveness for the believer is so at the center of God's heart that he wrote an entire work on it, the entire Bible. From beginning to end, the whole story, the whole meta narrative, the whole big story is about God freely bestowing forgiveness on undeserving sinners. Would you agree about that? But as central as that is to God's heart, it's also central to his heart that those that have received the forgiveness of God in such an amazing way would now be just as quick and just as willing to forgive those who have sinned against them. That's at his heart too. It's so at his heart that out of the 66 books that God himself has written within the Bible, he, he, he set apart one of them, the book of Philemon, for that express purpose to show us and to make a case for the forgiveness that you and I need to bestow on one another. So over the next few weeks, let me tell you kind of what we're gonna do, lay this out. Over the next few weeks, I wanna make a case for forgiveness. And beginning next week, what I want to do is I want to look at the heart that forgives. What condition does our heart need to be in that is, is a heart that's willing to be able to forgive people, even for the most atrocious sins against us? What's that heart look like? The week after, we want to take a look at the act of forgiveness. And, and what does it truly look like? I think that's a question in our mind. How do I know when I've truly forgiven? What does it mean to truly forgive somebody? And then the week after that, I want to really spend time on the motivation of forgiveness, why are we talking about this to begin with? What, what's driving us to seek within ourselves and the grace of God that it will allow us to be able to forgive one another? But this morning, we're just gonna give some background information. I'm, I'm just gonna lay out some background information that I think that would ultimately help us to better understand what's to come and, and understand exactly what it is that Paul would be telling us about this subject of forgiveness. So I wanna give you some background information and, and it's pretty simple, it's weird, but I think that we, we need it. Uh, let me say this, two things we wanna look at. First of all, we just wanna look at the context of the book. Let, read along with me, if you will, beginning in verse one, as we look at the context. The Bible says, Paul, a prisoner of, Jesus, uh, of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you in peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, there are several names mentioned here. In, in fact, there's several names mentioned in the book, especially in the beginning and then in the final greetings. But really, all the actions of the book really revolve around three main characters. It revolves around Paul, the mediating apostle, Philemon, the offended slave owner, and Onesimus, the runaway slave. Now, on the surface, guys, uh, they have nothing in common. Okay, uh, the slave owner has nothing in common with the slave, has nothing to do with the apostle Paul. These guys are not normally guys that would come together and sit down for lunch, right? They've got nothing in common with each other, at least on the surface. But just below the surface, you see that there is a very important similarity that they share amongst themselves. And that is that each and every one of them are general, general uh, or, or, or true believers in Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you this. Before Onesimus came to faith in Christ, he was a slave to Philemon, and he lived in a city known as Colossae. And during this time, uh, slavery was extremely common throughout all of the Roman Empire. But we have to understand very carefully and very specifically what type of slavery this was. The type of slavery is not, normally, uh, is not the type that normally comes to our minds as we begin to think about early American history and, and that forced slavery. The type of slavery that is mentioned here and they, they have in mind is really more of an indentured slavery. That is, that it's not about getting people and forcing them to do something. Rather, it's more about slavery by contract. This is kind of how it would work. There would be somebody that would find themselves in a financial bind. The collectors would want to come and be able to take their money from them. And so what they would do is they would need to pay it. And in order to pay it, what they would do is they would find some kind of benefactor, somebody who had some money, somebody like Philemon. And they would say, listen, I have this debt to be paid. And, and here's what I will do. I will work for you for such a period of time for you if you will pay this debt off for me. And so it was kind of more of this contract than it was something that was forth. Both parties were agreeing on compensation and were agreeing on what kind of work should ultimately be done for that. And also the length of how long the person would work. It's, it's really the, the type of slavery that's talking about is really far more like the employee-employer relationship that really we have today, right? Now, sometimes it feels like slavery, would you agree? Going, going to work every day, you know, got to work for the man, right? Got to work for the man. But, but it's really much more like what we see today than what we historically think in early America of slavery. And, and it was actually generally kind of a good thing. It was beneficial to many. In fact, some of the slaves were far better off than the freemen, the people with, their, uh, with, with freedom. Uh, they struggled. Many of the freemen struggled from day to day just to be able to get enough food to be able to eat. Uh, the slave during this time had no problem with food, no problem with clothing, no problem uh, with housing. Uh, they had no problem at all. They, they, they were oftentimes given a wonderful education. Uh, they were able to have families. They were able to own their own property. Some of them were actually able to work even harder to pay off their debt and, and earn their freedom uh, at an even earlier state. But what we know is, even though this type of slavery, this kind of indentured slavery that we're talking about, or indentured servitude, even though in and of itself it's not inherently evil, I think we would agree with that. I think that it's okay for a person to work for another person for a, a particular sum of money. If, if, if that's a sin, then all of us are in sin that go to work on Monday morning. So I think that we're okay with that. But what we know is, even though it's not inherently evil or wicked, we do know that man's heart is inherently wicked and evil and full of sin. 
So over a period of time, what happened was this, this type of indentured slavery began to fall into more of the type of slavery that you and I are so disgusted with the type of slavery that forces somebody to be able to work. And so people were forcing people into slavery. They were causing them to work. Over a period of time, uh, these slaves begin to appear and, and people begin to treat them like their own property, which means that they could do with them whatever they pleased. They could mistreat them. They could beat them. They could, they could uh, abuse them. They could even put them to death. This was the background of which this letter is being written. Remember, the letter is being written by the Apostle Paul to a slave owner to, uh, because, uh, on behalf of a runaway slave in order for them to be able to reconcile their relationship. So this is all that's going on during this time. And so we see that within the Word of God. And so here, here, here's the problem uh, for many today, for many critics of the Bible and many critics of Christianity they will look at the New Testament, they will look at the Old Testament, and they will say, why is it that the Bible never gives a definitive indictment on slavery? Well, there's an aspect of that that is true, and there's an aspect of that that is not true. Why is it that we don't see really the apostles speaking out against slavery during their day? Just flat out in their letters, hey guys, the slavery is wrong, it should be abandoned. Well, I think we've seen part of that truth is because not all slavery as we know it was necessarily evil, right? There was that indentured type that where two people are coming and they're agreeing. Are you guys tracking with me on this? Where they're agreeing with each other. Here, I'll pay this if you work with me for so long. So some of it was not completely and utterly evil between the two. But let me say this, and let me make this very clear. But whenever there is the sense of slavery as what we call man-stealing slavery, again, the type that, was, that we suffered from in the early part of American history, the Bible is very clear to indict and condemn that type of action, that type of slavery. For example, in Exodus chapter 21, in verse 16, the Bible says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Does that sound like a condemnation of slavery? That type of slavery? Absolutely. The Bible goes on, Leviticus 19, 15, Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, Amos 5, 11 through 14, all strictly denounce this form of slavery. The forced slavery, mistreatment of others, and the viewing of the people as property is clearly condemned by Scripture. Now, some would sit back and say, yeah, but why in the New Testament do the apostles still not directly condemn it? And that's a wonderful question. But I think the full answer to that is this, is that it was not their primary purpose to bring about social reform during their day. What was the primary purpose of the apostles? What's the primary purpose of the church then? It's to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was their primary purpose to share the gospel with every man, woman, and child to, from, from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group, to get the gospel out. There was so much struggle and suffering and persecution going on for the church. Have they decided to just go on and, hey, listen, this is gonna be our pet project. We're gonna go ahead and we're gonna tell everybody how horrible slavery is. The gospel would have never gone forth. The persecution would have been so bad, Christians would have been wiped out one right after another, the gospel would have never gone forth. Now, the question is, does this mean that this issue of slavery was not important, that these ideas of social reform were not important to the apostles? Absolutely not. It was extremely important to them. They just went about it a completely different way than you and I might be accustomed to, which is unfortunate. 
What do they believe? This is what they believe. They believe that the way that you change culture is you change the human heart. You change the human heart, how? Only one way, through the power of the gospel unto salvation. And so what they would do is their way of changing culture was to change one heart at a time, sharing the gospel, being faithful to do what God had called them ultimately to be able to do. And as they shared the gospel... And, and, and God would move and drive faith into the heart of the slave and drive faith into the heart of the master. And they were radically changed. They would go on, as we see in so many of the different epistles, we see them training them and now teaching them with a new heart how they ought to be treating one another, how they ought to love one another, and how they need to see each other as brother and sister in Christ. And that's what ultimately brings about change. Is that the heart? And we see this historically time and time again. Wherever the gospel goes, whatever country the gospel goes, we see radical change within the culture. Why? Because the people are changed. Because the people are changed. Now, we sit back and look, it is, this is just a wonderful reminder. In this first part of this, this context, it's a wonderful reminder of why we're here. Dan just hit on it just a couple minutes ago. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. Are we serious about uh, abortion and standing up against abortion? Absolutely. Are we serious about the sanctity of, uh, of life? Yes. Are we serious about the sanctity of marriage? Yes. Are we serious about those who are impoverished and those who are suffering? Yes, yes, yes. All those things are important, but they're not preeminent. Preeminent for us is to do all we can to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see men and women of God change. When their hearts change, they change. Now, this is the context. This is, this is the background of, of what's ultimately happening here. Now, let's look just for a moment at the characters that we're dealing with. As, as we said in the beginning, uh, there are uh, um, there are three primary characters. Let me, let me talk about Philemon just for a second. For everything we know about Philemon, remember, he's the, he's the homeowner. He's the one who owns slaves. He's the owner of, if you will, just using it in that context, of Onesimus. And he's the one who's been wrong. Now, everything that we know about him is he's a godly man. His reputation about everybody, you just ask him, How, how's Onesimus? Oh, man, he, he's, he's the real deal. And we're going to look at him next week. We're going to look at his heart. And we're going to get a picture of that next week. But understand this, because he is a man of God, we can trust that he wasn't taking part in any kind of crazy slavery here, that he was taking more a part of that exchange, that he had entered into this relationship with Onesimus to, to pay a certain part on his behalf, to be able to receive work on behalf of Onesimus that would come and serve. And so the question then is, if that's true, if he's such a, if he's such a stand-up guy, then why is Onesimus running away from him, huh? Well, I think the Bible's kind of clear on that. Uh, the Bible teaches us that the borrow is slave to the lender. You, you understand? I, I bet you there's some folks in here this morning uh, that you have some debt or at one time were so overwhelmed with debt, you just felt like checking out. Any of you, right? You got a debt, you're sitting there. Now, the debt that I owe to the creditors and to the bankers, normally, as long as I'm paying, they're pretty nice. They'll send me a pen and a coffee mug. They're so nice to me. When I come into the bank, they're like, hello, Mr. Kwiatkowski, how are you? We actually... I lie. It's usually Mr. Mike. Nobody wants to say Kwiatkowski. And can you blame him? How are you? How are you? Have we talked about our new rates today? Have we talked about this? Oh, you sit down here. Have some coffee. Have a cookie. They're, they're so nice. I mean, this is my master who I'm serving, right? And they're so nice and so, so wonderful uh, to me. But the truth of the matter is, is sometimes under that debt, you can get a little tired of it. 
You can have such a big debt. You can even, I've bought stuff that I've worked so long to be able to pay off, I can't even remember what it was that I bought. Have you, have you ever, you ever kind of got there? Or by the time you're paying it off, it's like, it's, it's broken. Paul Clark's, uh, oh, sorry, uh, I won't bring you in there. Uh, anyway, and so, so you, you, you find yourself in, in that position, right? And so what does he do? He, tie, he hightails it out. He doesn't want to be able to pay his debt. He wants to go. So what does he end up doing? He ends up defrauding Philemon. He defrauds him. Another way to say that is he stole against Philemon. He, he made a contract. He entered into a willful contract with him to be able to give a certain amount of goods or, or acts or, or service for a certain amount of money, and he didn't like it. He didn't like the pressure of it, and he skipped out on the bill. Okay, so this is just background information, but I think this is a wonderful opportunity to say this one statement, Christians, pay your bills. Thank you so much for an amen. I, that was so great. I didn't know what we were going to get there, okay? All right. I remember a couple years ago, 2008. Everybody remember 2008? It's branded in all of our minds. It's where everybody lost their mind. All right, here's what was happening. We had just gone from several years of people making a killing. Everybody laughed at all these Yuleyites, bunch of rednecks up in Yule, don't know anything, and now they're all rich beyond imagination because there are a bunch of rednecks up here, and now everybody wants to live where the rednecks are. So they come up and they buy the houses of the rednecks. They make a killing. Way, they make way more, double, triple sometimes of what they originally pay for their homes. Would you, would, you guys remember some of that. Then we have all of a sudden a downturn in the economy. And all of a sudden, what happens is how much people are buying homes for, now their house is beginning to devalue. Everybody loses their ever-loving mind. Now, nothing's changed for many people. For many people, they still make the same amount of money. All that's driving them crazy is that they owe more on their house than what they can actually get out of it. And here's what was so disturbing. Believer after believer after believer, at least professing believer, I would hear say and even saw walked away from their homes, gave it back to their bank because they didn't want to be underneath that type of indebtedness. Can I, can I suggest to you that that's just blatant sin? Blatant sin. For you not to pay your bills. Now, listen, these contracts that you, the things that you own, you willfully sign the contract to be able to pay for those. You got that, right? Uh, my wife and I just refinanced our home, uh, had some gambling problems, and so uh, we decided to go ahead and kind of refinance. It would help us out for a little bit more for my gambling problem. And so we went in to, the, uh, to, to refinance, and it was interesting. I'd never caught this before. It's not like I refinance all the time, but the lady sat across from us, and she goes, do you swear that nobody has coerced you or pressured you into this agreement with us today? I thought, what a strange question. But then when I began to study this, I thought, well, that kind of makes kind of sense, doesn't it? No, look, when I sign this, nobody's got a gun to my head. I'm willingly venturing into this kind of deadness, and I'm saying to the person, hey, you do this for me. I'm going to do this for you. And when we don't, we sin against God. We steal. Thou shalt not steal. We're, we're in the act of stealing. So listen, this is extra, just extra background information. Pay your bills. If you owe it, you pay it. Now, like I said, some of you were like, forget it. You lost me a long time ago. Well, let's move on to Onesimus. Onesimus ran. He, he ran to where? To Rome. Now, why would he run to Rome? Massive city, easy to get lost in, in, in really the, the uh, massive humanity there. In fact, it was kind of a capital. It was kind of the going thing. Hey, where are you going to go as a runaway slave? Oh, let's go to Rome. You know, we got a whole subculture there that people begin to run to. But the one thing that Onesimus couldn't have known, and he didn't know, 
was that you can't ultimately run from God. Because what he does is God actually sends and a missionary to the city of Rome, a man by the name, you may have heard of him, a man by the name of Paul. And Paul is at prison during this time. And Paul gets more done than anybody else I know. He writes four books while he's in prison. He's, he's sharing the gospel with everybody. And you know, if you meet Paul, you're going to hear the gospel whether you want to hear it or not. The poor Praetorian guard locked, shackled with him. What do you think he's doing all day? Talking football? No. What is he talking about? The gospel. You can't get away. So somehow, some way, and we don't know how through the scriptures, but it does tell us that through the providence of God, that this runaway slave, Onesimus, hardened heart Onesimus, meets Paul somehow there in prison. And he, Paul shares the gospel and he comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And he, 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 has a, he has a change that every true believer has. He's radically changed. How do we know that? Because he goes from not wanting to serve to now willfully serving Paul in prison. He comes to him, he serves him, he's taking care of his needs. Paul says to Philemon that he's very of great value to him, he loves him. And, and this is a difficult time. This is when persecution is really hot and heavy. And what's ultimately happening is, is people want to get away from Paul. And this man is so grateful and so changed that he's willing to be able to minister to the needs of Paul at this time, right there in prison. Well, as he begins to grow in Christ, Paul and he begin to have conversations. And both Paul and both Anesimus realize that there's a problem, that there's a man back in Colossae that he needs to try to reconcile with, that he needs to go back to, that he needs to seek forgiveness for and fulfill his ultimate obligation. And so that's where he goes, and, and this is what we find. Now, the reason for me to explain all, all of this, and, and, and here's, so here's what's happening. So Paul writes a letter, and he sends it either with uh, at least along with Onesimus to Philemon. And he's going to receive this letter. And what's unique about the letter is it's addressed to an individual. All of others, all the other letters by Paul is written to full cities. For example, Paul writes while he's in prison a letter to Colossae, the very church that met in Philemon's home. And he usually addresses it to full churches. Now he's addressing it to an individual, to Philemon. This is personal, loving, caring, nurturing letter that he's sending to one man to another, all for the sake to make a, a, to make a case for the forgiveness of the runaway slave. And so the reason I explain all that, and this is what I want you to get, and we're closing up right now, is this. These are real people that we're talking about in this study. And the reason I think that's important for us to understand is sometimes we just get so used to these names in the Bible that we just kind of think that they're living at some other time, which they did, some other place, which they did, but that they really can't relate to our lives. And every single one of them can relate to our lives. In fact, many of us are going to relate with different characters as we go through. You know, as we begin to work through this process, there's going to be some of us that are overwhelmingly convicted with our own sin. And there are going to be some of us that realize that we really identify with Onesimus that we've gone and we've made a mess of other people's life because of our own sin, that we've hurt others because of what it is that we've ultimately done. And God is gonna lead you, and I believe that the Holy Spirit's gonna lead you, and the call is gonna be for you to go and to reconcile with the one that you've ultimately harmed. It's gonna be hard. It's gonna be difficult. And, and, and I mean not just because of something that happened last night. There might be some who need to go and seek forgiveness because of harm that they brought about other people a decade ago or two or three decades ago. Some of us are going to really be able to identify, I think, with Philemon. I think that this is the gist, this is the overall gist of the thing, is that there are people who have harmed us, 
and we have been holding on to anger and bitterness and resentment to them, and we've never truly forgiven. And God and the Holy Spirit, through the working through this book, is, is going to call you to forgive. And I want to let you know right now, listen, I want to let you know right now, it's not easy. It's not even normally human, and it's against everything that our culture would ultimately say, but it's the call of God. Freely you have received, now freely we must give. There's going to be some who are going to identify with the Apostle Paul. With the Apostle Paul, some of you feel like you're in the middle. You ever feel like you're in the middle of a, of, a, of a fight? Moms, this is normally you. Dad's upset with daughter. Dad's upset with son. And you're kind of playing the field. And you're trying to make sure that everybody is okay. And all you keep asking for is peace and reconciliation and forgiveness amongst the family. And you're going to identify with this. But don't lose sight of what God wants us to do. God wants us to what? Forgive. Forgive. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say this in close. It's interesting to me that, um, well, let me just ask you this. What's at stake through this series? I think two things. I think number one is our relationship with others is at stake. You know, it's, it's interesting to me that I've met some folks, uh, even here in this church, that are incredibly godly people. And I'll sit down and I'll talk with them, and they are full of joy, and they are full of love, and they are a joy to be around, and they are happy. And when I sat down sometimes, and sometimes you just want to know what makes them tick, and you want to know their background. And I'll hear their background, and it is a nightmare, their background. I mean, they have been hurt, and they have gone through more hurt and more pain than you could ever imagine. And you're looking at this joyful person, this person who's a pleasure to be around, and you're looking at how they've been sinned against, and you're wondering, how, how can you be that way when you've been sinned against in all these other ways? Well, there's other folks that I've met, even in this church, and they're bitter, and they're resentful, and they're nasty, and they're harsh, and they're critical, and they're untrusting. And you sit down and you, you know their past and you're not surprised by their past because they're wearing it on their sleeve all the time. They're talking about how they've been a victim and how everybody else has ultimately hurt them. You guys understand what I'm saying? And you sit there and you go, well, how did they, how did they get this way? What is the difference between one who is full of joy and one who is full of sorrow? There's only one distinction between them, forgiveness. One learn the significance of how to forgive. So there's one thing at stake. It certainly is our relationship with each other. And finally, it's our relationship with God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 says this. It tells us, if you do not forgive men, then your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Let me say this very quickly. In context, when, when Jesus speaks these words, he's, not, he's speaking to believers in Jesus Christ. I don't believe that he means that you can lose your salvation if you fail to forgive other people. But what he is talking about, he's talking about intimacy with God. And for the true believer in Christ, they not only repent and believe in God and relish in the fact that their sins are forgiven and they have eternal life, what they most relish in is the intimacy that they share with the holy God. And the Bible says there is no chance of intimacy with you. Your prayers are hindered. There's little chance of any true spiritual growth if you refuse to forgive those who have sinned against you ton at stake. I'm going to ask Ashley to come at this time. And here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to ask you to pray. That's how we're going to respond. I'm just going to ask you to begin to pray. For today and for the coming weeks, for the next three or four weeks, I'm going to ask you to be here during the series. But here's what I'm going to say to some of you right here. Some of you don't need to hear one more word on the teaching of forgiveness. Some of you know more than I do is what the Bible says in the area of forgiveness. 
You've heard message after message after message. Nothing I knew is going to illuminate your mind in a new way. You know it all. All you need to begin to do is now forgive those that have ultimately harmed you. So let's not wait until week two or week three or week four or week five. Start week one. To do what you know to do is right. Let's pray, Jesus. We come to you. We love you. Lord, I just pray that our folks will pray. Right now, even where they're seated, God, they will begin to think about maybe the hurt in their life. And even more so, they'll begin to think about people that they're holding grudges against, that they've truly refused to fully forgive. And I pray that you would lay it on their heart, lay it on their mind. God, so much is at stake. So much is at stake. May we repent even today and begin that process of, of forgiveness and healing. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Would you stand?